It's nearly summertime, which means it's time for the annual Jaden's Bikes fire sale. At Jaden's Bikes, we've got everything you need. Mountain bikes, push bikes, BMX bikes, and even the ones with a little basket on the front to keep your drinks. We have nothing but the best bike suitable for any surface. Bitumen, grass, decking, verandas, gravel, you name it. Already got a bike? Like doing kickflips? We've got plenty of equipment and accessories too. Off the chain! Is your child a little rising star? You don't want them stuck in a hospital bed somewhere after an accident, feeling sheepish and not wanting to tell anyone what happened. Come in for some of our safety training sessions on Saturdays to make sure they're roadworthy. Need laybys? That's not a big thing. We've got plenty of payment plans too. With a ride from Jaden's Bikes, you'll be cool and hip, provided you don't injure one. Need a warranty? We have guarantees as solid as the concrete paving. Why gamble on any other brand when you could ride one of Jaden's Bikes? Jaden's Bikes, located in Collingwood, and come see the new store in Hunt Road, North Melbourne. Price is so low, you'd think we were drunk. This week on the Sport Blokes. This week, two cracking AFL prelims are set. Stefano sits a pass as US Open tilt goes down the toilet. Yuri Tolochko loves it in the ash. And speaking of, how are England looking three months out from the first Ashes test? Oop, down Yuri, down. Oh, let's go. It's 8.30pm on Wednesday, the 8th of September. And Shui, I've got to say... Had my second Pfizer jab today, so my arm is a little bit sore, but my 5G reception has never been better. As we do at the top every week, what caught your attention and what'd you miss? Well, as per usual, lots of really cool stuff happening this week, including Aussie Lauren Jackson being named as a 2021 inductee into the Basketball Hall of Fame. I as she should, yeah. Absolutely amazing. Also saw a really, really crazy stat a mate of ours sent us on Messenger. The top eight active scorers in the NBA, LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Kevin Durant, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Chris Paul, LaMarcus Aldridge, and Dwight Howard. Mm. One of these things is not like the other. Which one could it be? Yes, Chris Paul. The, the only, only one. The only one who's not a Laker <laughs> or a net. Which yes. one does Chris Paul go to mid-season? Uh, George Carl's tweet was pretty funny too about yeah. the Lakers. <laughs> yeah, the Lakers odds on to win the 2012-13 championship. Yeah. <laughs> absolute cracker there so yeah really amazing to see such a, a great list of talent unfortunately obviously super teams suck but yes they do they do i dare say the nets are probably in better shape than the lakers one injury to anthony davis and it could all go pear shape pretty quick for the lakers i reckon yeah one injury to kevin durant though you oh just, yeah well true i mean an injury it, to anyone it goes both ways yeah, yeah yeah sure sure kevin durant's maybe not as made of glass as davis is though that's the thing yeah he's like graphite or something i don't know <laughs> Now, unfortunately, we also saw the tragic conclusion of something we have spoken about on this show before. Jean-Pierre Adams, the French international player who was in a coma for 39 years after a botched operation on his knee, sadly passed away after 39 years without ever regaining consciousness. So a bit of a sad end to that story. Oh, it's a tragic story. Yeah, mm. absolutely tragic. But I guess the big thing that caught my attention this week is, unfortunately, the poor effort from the security in England again and the third appearance of Jarbo 69. Yes, Yes. So he started off with a fielding effort, trying to change the field around for India, then padded up for a bat. Yep. And now he's run onto the pitch of the Oval in London with ball in hand and delivered a ball akin to Steve Harmison's delivery to Justin Langer in the 06-07 Ashes. <laughs> it was horrendous. It uh, ran into the back of Johnny Bairstow. I think it was slightly better than Harmison's oh, one. <laughs> just. But I have to ask the question, Nate. Do you think this whole thing has run its course? Oh, absolutely. It did after the second. Yeah. First time's funny. Second time's funny too. But it's like movies that keep pumping out sequels where it gets to the point where it starts to actually take away from the first. If it stuck to one or two, I think it would have been funny. We would have looked on it in humor. Now it's getting old. Yeah. yeah. I think him going out with the pads on was clever. Yes. But I, yeah, absolutely. This was disgraceful. Yeah. If, if you can't bowl don't yeah don't even try like it's, yeah. yeah that's run its course he'll probably walk out as an umpire next yeah well probably yeah did you know though that he actually did this in the fiend diving as well 
I did, but only because you told me a couple of days ago. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So he's actually jumped over one of the fences and run up to about the seven meter platform, stripped off, and he'd been caught by security in the time it took him to get his kid off. But he's managed to sort of push the security guard away and jumped off the seven meter platform, done a bit of a bommy. So he's a bit of a serial pest. Yes, indeed. There's a few of them around the traps. Having said that, though, still an outside chance of making the England squad for the Ashes. <laughs> hey, balls like Harmison, so why not? It, it has to be said, a pretty average fourth test from the Poms outside of maybe India's first innings. You bowl a side out for 192 on your home deck, you kind of expect to go on and win that test. Oh, yeah. India have had some amazing results in both now Australia and now England. Yeah, mm. absolutely amazing. But uh, yeah, look, they, they batted poorly outside of maybe Ollie Pope and Chris Wokes. Their bowling and their fielding was terrible in the second innings. I think Rory Burns dropped Rohit Sharma twice on the way to making a century. Yeah, it, yeah. India make 466 and then they waste a 100-run opening partnership to lose by 157 runs. They lost 10 for 110. Yeah. Four for six at one stage. Yeah, I saw that. So very, very poor. And I have to say, England seem right for the picking with the Ashes. Oh, of course they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They don't play well on our decks either, generally. Mm. So they need Joe Root to score 200 every match, basically, to have any chance. And Joffrey Archer won't be back for the Ashes either, I believe. So Mm. they're in in trouble, definitely. One last thing as well, Nath, because I know you're itching to get into your couple. Oh, well, you know, No rush. But speaking of madness, how's the madness of the Brazil-Argentina World Cup qualifier in Brazil? 10 minutes into the game, you've got Brazil's health authority and visa storming onto the pitch, demanding four of these Argentinian players that travelled from the UK be deported for violating oh, Brazil. Like, get it, violating their health regulations. It's nuts. So the four players involved, you've got Emilio Martinez and Emilio Buendia of Aston Villa, and you've got the Tottenham Hotspur pair of Christian Romero and, and Giovanni Lo Celso. They should have quarantined for 14 days. But oddly, even with Anvisa issuing a statement on this in the lead up to the game, Argentina still named three of them in their starting 11. Risky business. Mm. Argentina claims they were never told, which I think is bullshit. Either way, very curious to know why nobody stepped in before the game started. Mm, Absolutely. How about yourself, mate? Well, I'll stick on that soccer trend, I guess. But first, it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge the results in the NBL 1 West Finals after we had that great chat with Cody Ellis last week. And please, we encourage you to go back and listen to it if you haven't already. He was super frank and honest and was really generous with his time. Perry Lakes got up in the end for the men, 92, defeating Rockingham, 82. And in the women's side of the draw, Willerton, 65, beat Joondal up, 54. And while I'm on this track, we also should acknowledge friend of the show, Alex Loughton, will be competing for the Cairns Marlins against Mackay in the NBL 1 North. So good luck to him in that. Back to the soccer, though. El Mundo has published details of Neymar's Paris Saint-Germain contract a lazy $781 million in total. I believe that's Australian figures. According to the report, PSG pays Neymar an ethics bonus of $867,000 per month, which is approximately $10.4 million per year, just for being, and I quote, polite, punctual, friendly, and available to fans. That's under the not an asshole clause. Far out. $10 million a year. I could be moderately friendly for that sort of thing. Oh, jeez. I'll tell you what I'd do for that sort of figure. Um, I, and then, I, can, I can guess. <laughs> then Paul Green has stepped down as the Maroon State of Origin coach after just eight months. He's had the dubious honour of being at the helm a year. They lost two games in Queensland, including a 50-6 to six defeat at the hands, of course, the New South Wales Blues. So not a very good career for him in the storied history of the Maroons. You. And then finally, my girlfriend and I went and saw Hannah Gadsby on Saturday night. So I had to uh, stay away from the footy result. And I'm glad I did because it was a bloody cracking game. One of the best finals in a long time. And she did some pretty risque stuff on netball. But the one I will mention is uh, there's a lot of bibs, but no dribbling, which I thought was a pretty funny oh, game. That is clever. Yeah, yeah, it was a good show. Oh, that, that's nice. It was a good show. Clever humor. None of this toilet stuff. <laughs> What'd you miss, mate? Have a guess. Uh, footy. Yeah, Saturday footy again. Look, I did get to catch up and, and watch it at a later time, but unfortunately, I'm just not getting to see any of it live. And I'm actually concerned at this rate, I'm not going to see the grand final live. Well, yeah, that wouldn't be too good. Mm. Would it? Mm. How about yourself? Well, uh, it's a bit embarrassing, but I jumped the gun at the start of the NFL season. So it didn't start on the weekend. It actually starts in a couple of days on Friday. The curtain raiser is Tampa Bay and Dallas, which will be a great game. And for those interested, there's actually going to be seven Aussies playing in the NFL this season. And if you're looking to support a team and haven't picked one yet, perhaps look no further than the Philadelphia Eagles. 
who have named Jordan Mailata as their starting left tackle, which for those of you who have seen the movie The Blind Side know how very important that position is indeed, particularly for protecting the quarterback. But they also have former St Kilda Saint Aaron Sipos punting for them as well. And of course, they have Rocker played for them at one stage. So they've actually had a few Aussies over the years, the Philadelphia Eagles. So that's a team. It's, it's always amazed me that more AFL fringe players with long legs haven't actually gone over and given it a shot. Like Trent McKenzie. I think it's happening more and more. But it still surprises me how, yeah, how yeah. few. There still should be more guys. As I say, Trent McKenzie's the guy that jumps out at me, kick a ball an absolute mile. Yep. Never going to be an absolute superstar in the AFL. Why not take your chance? Yeah, I agree. And there's been a lot of guys like Matt McBriar, for example, has had a very good career as a punter over yep. there. So, yeah, no, some guys have forged some pretty good careers in that yep. position. Make your money. Well, Shui, as you mentioned, and as I mentioned too, I guess, we didn't get to watch them live. We got there in the end. And I'll tell you what. I managed to stay away from the Dogs and Lions result for nearly two full days before I got to watch. And I'm glad I did because it was an absolute cracker. You said Dogs by 33. I said Lions by five. So we were both right in one way or another. I was right that it was close. Your line, my length, basically. Yeah, basically. In the end, the Dogs, 11 goals, 13-79, defeating the Lions by a whisker, 11 goals, 12-78. What a magnificent game. Yeah, this... Probably will be hard to beat in terms of games of the finals. Second straight one-point game and, in a week. And I, I have to say, it did eclipse the Swans and Giants game. Oh, bloody oath, Drew. Absolutely it was. Because I remember when, just after McCluggage kicked the first goal of the third, they showed the amount of time in front for both teams, and it was nearly identical. It was an absolute nail-biter from go to woe. I can't remember a game that close for that long. Because normally there's a bit of momentum here and there. Got You know, a team will kick four in a row or something, but it was an absolute nail bite. And, and there was a little bit of that. I mean, in, in the third quarter, as you mentioned, after the McLuggage goal, you had Zach Bailey and Ryan Lester kick consecutive goals. And it, and it kind of looked like Brisbane were maybe going to run away with it. But look, quick reply to Johannesson, and then you had Jack McRae and Josh Shackey and Bailey Smith. Bailey Smith. They, best they, on ground. Yeah, <laughs> It's a, it's a tough one, actually. I think Bailey Smith was probably best on ground. 27 touches and three goals. When the game was there to be won, though, he was. I think he was best on ground, yeah. I mean, Jack McRae... Oh, McRae was magnificent. 39 touches, 11 clearances, 11 inside 50s. Would probably feel a little bit of grief. Oh, that. yeah, yeah. No, he was huge as well. But either way. And, and it was the usual suspects for the most part, aside from Bailey Smith. I mean, you look at Caleb Daniel, 31 touches the usual sublime touch around the ground. There was one kick he had very, very late in that fourth quarter where he's... Not the deliberate out of bounds. No, not that one. (laughs) We'll get to the controversies in a sec. But he's basically hit a guy lace out through the corridor with the game well and truly in the balance. And just his touch around the ground is phenomenal. Bonds and Pelly, 29 touches and five clearances before he went off. We'll also get to that. Yeah, huge, huge. But it was just, it was one of those real workmanlike performances by the dogs. And I, I think that ultimately is what got them over the line aside from potentially some umpiring which yeah and look maybe brisbane could have put him away a little bit too but yeah but i think probably one of the biggest unsung heroes and i say unsung because a lot of people are singing his praises after this taylor Duray. yeah 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 well the commentators did mention him a few times too mm. yeah but look charlie cameron absolutely toweled eastern wood in that first quarter kicked three goals on him looked like he was gonna basically run away with the game first goal of the game wasn't it in pagan's paddock like you called for last week yeah yeah well, that, that's it. They kind of did that. They, they gave him that one-on-one and Easternwood wasn't the right person to match up on him. And as soon as they put Jure on him, he shut him down. He kicked one behind for the rest of the match. Yep. And it has to be said, the one-on-one inside 50 with about 40 seconds left in the fourth quarter that Jure managed to neutralise, being on an island with Charlie Cameron, is there a scarier scenario in the AFL? At the Gabba too, with the home fans absolutely going nuts. Yeah. yeah. No, that was a huge play. Yeah. Huge. To neutralise that is absolutely a win in anyone's playbook. On the other side, I thought McCluggage was probably best for the Lions. And Harris Andrews was bloody good too. Yeah. Bloody yeah. good. They sent him forward. He kicked an important goal. He, he did. Look, Lockie Neal, 28 touches. Good, but not great. Yeah, no. Yeah, did his job, but yeah. And only six touches in the last quarter, plus a very, very key miss on a snap from the boundary. He probably kicks nine times out of 10. The forward line. Okay, so Charlie Cameron, brilliant in the finals. Eight goals in two games. Absolutely big tick, did his job. Joe Danaher. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that. So I was thinking when I watched, because I watched the games out of order. So I was thinking when I was watching the Geelong GWS game, that there's two blokes that have changed teams recently. One of them I wanted and one of them I did not want to touch with a 50-foot clown pole. And my gut was right. 
because I would have loved to have Jeremy Cameron in a Swans uniform and I did not want us to get Danaher at all and I'm so glad that we didn't. And yeah, okay, granted, a couple of big forwards were out for them and he would have caught more attention, but they're paying him the money that he should get the best defender and okay, he's often getting the third best defender. So, yeah, he went very quiet. And obviously they picked him up for that time of the season. They picked him up to be big in finals. And he had a pretty decent regular season, you have to be saying. Like the home and away season was good for him. But oh, he kicked a goal in every game by one, I believe. So he, he was fairly consistent. But unfortunately, yeah. when you kick one goal two or one goal three across the two finals, it's just not good It's enough. really not. Not for the money they're paying him. Mm. No, definitely not. I've got to also say, I thought Oscar McInerney was bloody good in the ruck. Like, if you look at his possessions, I reckon he had nearly 20 possessions and nearly all of them would have been him taking it out of the ruck. He took so many balls out of the ruck. And we keep talking about how that's the weakness for the dogs. He dominated, absolutely dominated. And a lot of them were effective possessions too. So I thought he was very good for them as well. 17 touches and 40 hitouts for the game. So yeah, yeah. Pretty bloody good. I can almost guarantee nearly every single one of those 17 touches was out was catching it out of the ruck and kicking or handballing. Yeah, yeah, very impressive. Now, before we get into the umpiring, which we will talk about, we've got to talk about probably two of the biggest talking points out of the game, and it is the two big injuries with Cody Waitman and, unfortunately, Marcus Bontempelli as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely huge. So the Bontempelli knee. It did not look good. He was limping around after the game. He put on a brave face and he said all the right things in the interview. So from all accounts, it looks like it's somewhere around the PCL region. Now, the Bulldogs obviously will give him right until the 11th hour to make the decision. They'll probably wait till about an hour before bounce down to make the call on whether he plays. I actually heard an interesting opinion on that. I I wish I could remember who they were talking about, but I remember they were talking about a final where they said such and such is not playing. It might have even been Dusty, actually. He's not playing. We're going to rule it really nice and early in the week. You blokes have got to get it done without him. And then sure enough, win and he can maybe come back the next week. So it's an interesting tactic. Now, I'm going to post you a question that I've heard asked a couple of times. If he's 50, 60, maybe even 70%, do you play him? Oh, it's so tough, isn't it? I mean, I guess you could stash him in the forward line. I am actually in favour of playing healthy blokes in finals. So I'd find it hard to play him. And as I say, he limped around after the game. Now, he could recover in a week and they can give him a jab in the knee and all that sort of stuff. But eh, I don't know. Do you look at it and say, okay, let's see if we can get two and a half to three good quarters out of him in the forward line. They have no Josh Bruce there. They've got no real big markers aside from Aaron Norton, especially with Waitman out as well. Do you look at it and say, right, he's a big target. We're going to basically force one of the Port Adelaide players to, you know, to man him up. And maybe place decoy. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's, Maybe you play him out of the goal square and you just say, right, if he takes one player out of the game completely, so be it. Look, it's an option. It's an option. And he's an impressive player. I mean, that's an understatement. He's one of the best players in the comp. He may win the Brownlow. So it'll be very hard not to pick him. Very hard. It's going to be a very difficult decision. I mean, I'm still with you. I don't play him either if he's yeah. not, if he's not yeah. right. Because not being able to lead or chase is going to be tough. Yeah. Then we've got the Cody Waitman concussion. So massive loss for the, the forward liner. He has been just a bundle of energy since he came into their side. He is a phenomenal pack mark for someone so small. Do you know who he's like? And not just the way he plays, the way he looks. He's very Isaac Heaney. Yeah, okay. He even looks just like him. He's like me. The blonde surfer boy, but he can kick a goal, as you say. He can take a good grab. But he's very Isaac Heaney-like. He's like mini Heaney, yeah. basically. yeah. Yeah, so he's very, very unlucky. Basically flat out ran into Marcus Adams' shoulder. I don't think Adams even really saw him coming, to be honest, until the very last split second. He's just kind of put his hand up. But yeah, just the energy that you get from him. You look at guys like Liam Ryan, Charlie Cameron, Anthony McDonald, Tip and Woody, prime Hayden Ballantyne. These guys that just lift teams with their energy. Um, Jamie Elliott's another one. I'm trying to think of a few guys off the top of my head, but those real... You know, it's often goal sneaks, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But like he was great on the bench as well. He was celebrating and standing up and waving his arms around. And he, he wasn't acting like a bloke that had been concussed. That's for sure. Yeah. Now, the Dogs have played 41 players this season, the most of any team in the league. So if anyone does have a roster that will allow guys to step in, it is the Bulldogs. And obviously their midfield is sensational with or without Bontempelli. So... I suppose that potentially does give them a chance against Port Adelaide. And maybe they do throw Eugle Hagen in. Maybe they have no choice. Yep, absolutely. I do just quickly want to go back to Bailey Smith for a second. 
What did you make of the, like, I've got ice in my veins gesture? Yeah, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about this. I mean, obviously, we know it from the NBA, and a lot of people had to be educated the, on that. And D'Angelo had, Russell, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they had no idea. He claims it was a vaccination thing, which is complete what? bullshit. What? Yeah, no, no, he came out on social media the next day. And, no. and look, he's sending the right message as far as people getting vaxxed. Oh, but daily, no. Yeah, no, no. It's just, to me, it just looks like a heroin the, the, thing. The vax doesn't go there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's doing, what I mean. Yeah, yeah. No, well, it's, he's, that's just backtracking. No, that's what I'm saying. It's bull- yeah, that's like, it, bullshit. It, it, it just looks like heroin. It looks like, yeah, it's a weird look. Yeah. yeah. All right, no, the umpiring. Yeah. 28 free kicks to the dogs, 19 to Brisbane. It's a lot of free kicks total. It is. Look, I'm not, I don't tend to be one that looks at the totals, and that's not so much what has me too upset. First of all, one against the dogs, the deliberate or what's actually called insufficient intent. So the rule is insufficient intent to keep it in bounds. We had yet another one where Caleb Daniels thrown his boot at it, he's come off the side of the and boot. And he's been pushed at the same time. It, uh, yeah, okay, I forget that bit. But it's come off the side of his boot and it's gone out of bounds and they've called insufficient intent. Mm. It's like, have these umpires not been around the game long enough to know a skill error when they see it? It was so clearly and blatantly a skill error. Yeah. I just don't know how it happens. And then the next one was McInerney in the ruck, right near the end on the other wing. And he... I don't believe it was intentional. I just think it was a skill error too. He's tried to give a handball and it's just sailed past his teammate. Can't remember who it was. Gone out of bounds. And they've pinged him for that one too. And that was at a very critical juncture of the game. Yep. Very critical too. Yeah. You've also got the free kick given to Alex Keith that uh, that overturned one. Very, well, that's the one at the end. Very, yeah. very crucial decision. And look, to be honest, so I think initially wasn't an in the back paid to Neil and then it was reversed. Yes. So... I'm not sure that Neil should have got the free, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think it probably should have been a throw-up. But the reversal was absolute bullshit. That's horrendous. Bullshit. And look, you can make a very strong argument that that free on the wing led to the Bailey Smith goal, which was huge. And then one of my absolute favourites, the running too far. Oh, yes. So Zach Bailey's run into an open goal effectively and, and kicked the goal to tie things up with a minute 40 left. He picked the ball up about 48 metres out and he kicked it from inside 30. So mm. he's run at least 20 metres. I must confess, I don't remember that, but mm. okay, there you go. I remember all of them. Yeah, cause... well, it's like I remember the not 15s. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Then the ruck infringement at the end. I mean, th- that sort of stuff happens a dozen times in a game. Yeah. Well, There's no way that should have been called with a minute left in a final. And of course, it led to the rush behind. Yes, a rush behind was the winning score, but it was... Enough to put him up by one. I'd give him the benefit of the doubt and say it was a kicked behind, but, <laughs> but well, look, basically. Yeah, but you're right. Uh, that free kick's not there. It's it's a real shame because we could have gone into extra time potentially. Mm. You can definitely understand why Brisbane fans feel aggrieved. And gee, that bad record continues, doesn't it? Well, yeah. So for Brisbane, one and five in their last four final series, and five of those six at the, at the Gabba. Gabba. Yeah. And as I said before, up three goals late in the third quarter. Yeah. Do you think this is a bigger disappointment than last year? given that it was still played in Brisbane, but given that Brisbane had 90% of their games at home last season? Uh, it's probably on par, to be honest. I, I think you could maybe say it's more disappointing because of the the dodgy umpiring. Yeah, look, I, I think I did picture long last year in that prelim game against the Lions. So I think the, the two best teams probably were in the grand final last year. So they probably did lose. to. I mean, if I'm a Brisbane fan, I probably feel more pissed off about this year. Yeah. Although, actually, last year they would have hosted the granny, wouldn't they? Yes. They're both very disappointing. Then next, and look, I'll be honest, I don't have a hell of a lot of notes on this one. Geelong, you said cats by 12. I said cats by 18. It was a little bit more than that in the end. 15 goals, 13, 103, defeating the Giants, 10 goals, 8, 68. It's got to be said, though, that they did kick away at the end, and the Giants held on for much longer than I expected them to. Rinse and repeat for the Cats. Yeah. Honestly. They're good in semis. Yeah. A poor, yeah. A poor first week followed yeah. by a pretty solid semifinal. Yeah. And look, they can be better. There were a lot of skill errors involved in this game. It was. It was sloppy, wasn't it? it yeah. It's basically, I think, the Cats just being the beneficiaries of GWS playing their grand final last week and having a lot of guys out. I mean, the Jesse Hogan scratching last minute. Yes was very, very crucial to an already depleted forward line. And I posted on our Twitter at Sportbloke straight away, the the Giants are cooked. Mm. As soon as Jesse Hogan, and look, they were gallant. They were really gallant in defeat with not many forward targets. And granted, you know, their midfield was pretty much intact. 
but it was always a big ask because Hogan played quite well against the Swans. Two goals, two. Both of those goals were really important. And he's a key target as well. And he knows Optus. Yes. He's played at that stadium a few times over his career. So, yes, yeah. Look, I think with this one, Geelong, just they took more risks. They kind of looked a lot more like the Geelong that we're used to seeing. They always look better when guys like Isaac Smith and Cam Guthrie and Zach Tui are taking the game on. Isaac Smith into his sixth prelim, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Not a bad career. Um, speaking of Zach Tui as well, though, what a huge luxury it is having someone like him. 31 touches and five marks, as well as Mitch Duncan. 22 touches and eight marks. Oh, second, huge. First and second game back for the two of them. Huge ins. But do you know what else? I thought Radical Ear was a really important in. That was, he played really well. He was a key target and he did some good things throughout the course of the game. I think the best way I've heard this described, it is the best five-touch game you'll probably see. Did he only have five touches? Five touches. Wow. But wow. the big difference, though, if you look at this, and, and also the big difference between the round 23 clash with Melbourne and this game that's coming up, is that there was no Radigalia in yep. that round 23 clash. Yep. So it's going to put a lot more pressure on Melbourne. And that's what he did to the GWS backs. It's, that astonishes me. Yep, it's another big... Five touches. But, but this is the thing, though. He's wow. creating packs. Yeah. He's bring it to ground he, for the crummers. Yeah, he takes a key player. If you look at the week before against Port Adelaide, Alir Alir basically went to Gary Dominated, Rowan yeah. And, and yep. dominated because yep. he didn't have to really worry about Rowan doing what Radigalia does and running through packs and all that sort of stuff. And Rowan did play better this week, it's got to be said. Kicked a couple of goals, known for getting missing in he finals. He did get a very, very big seagull goal, though. Oh, yeah, true, yeah. <laughs> it yeah, is yeah. one of them. The second quarter, was it? Yeah, 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 I know the one you mean, though. Yeah, yeah. But, but this is the thing. If you look at what he does, he creates more room for Hawkins and Cameron. Hawkins was magnificent. He was. Best forward in the game? Uh, I would think so, yeah. Certainly in terms of his ability to kick straight as well. Five goals, one, I think it was. Yeah, it was huge. But it, but it also means for Gary Rowan that he's getting a much more favourable matchup. Yes. So they're 12-2 and two with Radigali in the lineup, 5-5 five and five without him. Wow, that's telling. So that's I, telling. I think you've kind of got to keep him in. Jez Cameron was magnificent too, it's got to be said. He, he was. Playing the team game as well. Yep. At which, by the way, we didn't mention, Adam Trelaw was shocking for the dogs. And it almost looked like he was sucking in his game. Oh, absolutely. There's been a lot of talk about that. Jez, on the other hand, wasn't necessarily the number one, but played a really good team game, had that magnificent snap. There were a couple of good goals in that pocket, actually. There were. One for each team. Well, yeah. I, well, I said on our show last year that I think Jeremy Cameron might be one of the best field kicks in the competition. He's a great player. His ability on the left to find guys is just superb. So, yeah, he's a, obviously what completes that forward line. And, yeah, he, look, he makes them dangerous. For GWS, though, look, no real firepower in that in that team. I mean, they looked more dangerous and likely to get their goals from the midfield than they did from their forward yeah, line. Yeah, yeah. Lockie Whitfield, pretty good over the last three quarters, but just too many passengers like Daniel Lloyd. 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 And uh, Bobby Hill, basically non-factors, I will say. Hill's goal. Hill's goal. Oh, fantastic. One of the goals of the season. Had the ball on a string. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there were other guys like Phil Davis in the back line, nine touches. Sam Taylor, six touches and nothing in the third quarter. He got towelled up by Hawkins. Just not enough big performances like the previous week. And, and he's a young fella and he's got a lot of accolades this season. He'll be the better for that run. Oh, 100% he will be. Yeah. But unfortunately yeah. on the night, just, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. just wasn't good enough. Sure. And the occasional camera panning to Toby Green in the crowd every now and then. Yeah. Looking upset. That's what you need. Yeah. So, Stewie, it wasn't without a bit of trouble, but we've managed to secure tickets to the Melbourne versus Geelong game. So I guess let's tip that one first. Yeah, I've got the Demons by 12. I think this is going to be a very close game. You've got to look at the experience of the Cats, combine that with, I guess, the expectation and the weight of the world that is on the Demons' shoulders right now. It makes this one a bit iffy. I think Melbourne are primed and ready, though. They're a couple of years older than they, they were last time they were here. Petrarca and Oliver, I think, will combine for about 70 touches. Wouldn't surprise me. And, and I think the Ds just get over the line. I think the Ds will win too. I'm going to say a little bit more. I'm going to say 21. I think Geelong play Optus decent. They've played here a lot in the last... Well, not a lot, but they've played a few games here at Optus Stadium in the last couple of years, and I think that will help their cause, including Friday, of course. So they've been here for a while. But I just love the balance of Melbourne... Now that they have May and Lever down back, they just have such a well-balanced side. I do think the Ds will get up. Yeah. Yep. And like I said last week, I think we're on a collision course for a Ds port granny. And I dare say both of us will be barracking for Melbourne from the standpoint. Oh, side. yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to go for the underdog. So they're the underdog in the sense that they have the longest premiership drought. So absolutely. Yep. Yeah. 
And then we've got the dogs traveling to Adelaide after they've traveled all around the country. They're going to rack up a lot of miles getting to Adelaide Oval to face Port Adelaide, who, well, are you a believer yet, Stewie? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you talk about that travel, Launceston to Brisbane to Perth to Adelaide. Yeah. That's huge. Oh, it's, it's with injury concerns and with a iffy ruck. Okay. So, I think we need two different scenarios for this one. Okay. So with and without Bontempelli. Well, yeah. Because okay, okay. <laughs> the thing is, we're not going to know until the last minute. And I, and I think it, it doesn't... I know it's kind of hedging up. Oh, it doesn't bit. change for me. Port, port win no matter what. Oh, absolutely. But, and Port probably win fairly comfortably. I'll say Port by 27. I'll say Port by 17 if Bontempelli plays. If he doesn't play... I think you can probably tack about 20 more points onto that. Yeah, that's probably fair. Port are looking so polished right now. That home crowd in Adelaide are mental for them. Yeah, I think the dogs might jump them a little bit early, but yeah, the travel gets to them. Scotty Lysette will be basically dominating the ruck, palming down to his runners like he did last time, and Port too strong. In our preview show, I picked Port to win the premiership. You picked Richmond, so they're two wins away from maybe getting that tip. Come on the Tigers. But I might pick Melbourne anyway. I might pick Melbourne <laughs> oh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. We'll see so. what happens this weekend. I think so. But Jesus, exciting. And now, what made Stu say bloody... Ah, no, 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 <laughs> no. Bloody hell does not cut it this week. <laughs> no, it doesn't. What the fuck? <laughs> Is, that's probably the only thing that even comes close. Oh, this. yeah. No, definitely. All right. Here we go. <laughs> what made Stu say fucking hell? Yeah. So it takes us this week back to the world of Kazakhstani bodybuilding and our old mate Yuri Talochko. Oh, he's made a third appearance, Chewie. So last time we checked in with Yuri, he was in the honeymoon phase with his new wife, the sex doll. Yes. And needing, rep- needing repairs. Needing, needing repairs, it has to be said. <laughs> Sadly, it seems the romance has ended and oh. Yuri has moved on. Oh, Yuri. With an ashtray. <laughs> I wish you were kidding. So do I. Oh, man. An ashtray that he met at a nightclub. Where else? Yeah, well, that seems to be his thing. (laughs) So he's met this ashtray at a nightclub. He's fallen for it during a paid personal appearance at said club. To quote him, I liked it, the smell of it, the touch of metal on my skin. It's fantastic, he proudly declared to Jam Press. I like the touch of sharp metal on my skin. It excites me, so I think you can understand what attracts me to this ashtray when i hugged it and pulled out cigarette butts cigarette packs and all sorts of stuff i liked it he said i liked it when the ashes stained my bare feet body and beard i assume she's called ashley (laughs) no sarah (laughs) (laughs) the greatest thing about this jury is you and i messaged each other within about a minute like with the same well, you, use. You like, sent me the message and yeah. I was two thirds of the way through typing it out. Yeah. What oh, has Yuri my done? God. Yuri. But it gets even better or probably worse, actually. <laughs> He's planning on attaching an artificial vagina to the ashtray. I guess maybe so he could do it in the butt. <laughs> it doesn't make sense if he likes to feel the metal. I'm not going to think about this too much. The, so this let's is, not overanalyze this one. This is just something that you and I, and hopefully the majority of the population, just cannot even begin to understand. But I guess he's got something in common with you, Nath. He gets aroused by heavy metal. I don't get aroused by it. I just slightly stick to it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> oh, shit. So for liking big butts and not being able to lie about it, <laughs> all I can say is, yucky bis, what the fuck? Oh, man. Bloody hell. So, Joey, the Paralympics have wrapped up, and what a wonderful event it is. And I must be honest, I didn't see as much of it as I should have. But what I did see, I thoroughly enjoyed, and it's done in such great spirit. Yeah, look, it's great to see just an amazing spectacle, just as interactive and inclusive as the other Olympics. Absolutely, maybe more so. Yeah, the music and the dances at the closing ceremony and the opening ceremony were superb. I remember one violinist in particular, I've just got this vision of her sitting there staring down the camera with a little prosthetic arm, absolutely smashing it. Yeah, it would have been moving. Doing amazing. Yeah. But you've got these crazy stories like Chinese swimmer Zheng Tao not only winning four golds and breaking records, but doing so with no arms. Mm. no arms, mm. holding onto a cloth with his teeth on the starting block. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. Then you've got Egyptian table tennis player Ibrahim Hamadou playing with no arms as well, throwing the ball up with his feet and putting the paddle in his mouth, just dominating. People running marathons completely blind. 
it just it makes you want to do better. It really it, does. It makes you want to be better in life. So they, they inspire us. And yep. It is just great. Couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. So before we even get into the action, I do want to talk a little bit about one of the, the really, really great things to come out of the last couple of weeks. And it is the equal pay for Paralympians. And we're referring to, I guess, the gold medal bonus that the country has offered. So I don't know the exact figure, but there's always been this talk that the gold medalists get some sort of pay incentive for winning gold, which is kind of cool. I guess it encourages people to to do well. It also kind of discourages people from celebrating winning silver and bronze. Yeah, yeah. But we'll focus on the positives. Well, it's hard for a lot of these athletes to make money. So compared to other athletes, so that's a good thing. It It is a good thing. But looking at what Scott Morrison has done, he's come out and said, look, we are going to provide the same remuneration for the Paralympic athletes as we have for the, the able-bodied, which is great. Yep. It should be a given. I've heard the decision likened to a free kick directly in front with nobody on the mark, but still a great decision and a, a groundbreaking day for Paralympic athletes. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, they're just as inspiring as any other athlete, if not more so. Well, they are. Yeah. And, and you look at what they achieve and the vast majority of them are better than the vast majority of us sitting out there watching. I mean, I've spoken about a swimmer with no arms yep. would, would still dominate me in the pool. Yeah, yeah. The table tennis guy with no arms would probably still beat me pretty handily at table tennis. And I'm not a bad player, but these guys are just phenomenal. It's so inspiring. And then there's these great stories of kind of the next generation coming up. So Niels Vink, the tennis player who was basically inspired by Dylan Alcott and has read his book and they've become mates now over the journey. But if it weren't for that inspiration, maybe he would have never started playing himself. And look, that is a, a really, really great point. This next generation, I'll be so interested to see if we start seeing some new sports coming through and we will talk about some of the other really interesting sports that they have. And there's obviously some sports that the disabled athletes are not able to compete in. However, you sort of look at some of the stuff that's coming up in Paris, you know, things like the break dancing, you know, we've seen the skateboarding coming through. Will we start seeing a lot more of that sort of stuff coming through that is aimed at that younger generation? And it is, will be fascinating to see. And they've got stuff like wheelchair rugby. Like they have some quite, the one you mentioned last week, uh, goalball, was it? Yep, goalball. They, they've got their own sports, which is really cool too, I think. Well, yeah, it's funny you say that. One of the, the first things I kind of wanted to talk about was this sport called boccia. Now, for those who didn't manage to see it, it's kind of like their version of lawn bowls. Or bocce. Or bocce. Well, yeah, it's kind of like a mixture between the two. So what you have is you've got the jack and then you've got this big wooden apparatus, basically, that the players use to balance. It's not as solid as a normal lawn bowls ball, but it is, it's kind of like a mixture between that and a hacky sack. So it kind of rolls, but it doesn't roll anywhere near as far. So they pop it at the top of this thing and the competitors will do different things. Some of them who are unable to use their arms will pop a stick in their mouth and knock it off and it rolls down and they're trying to get as close to the jack. Fascinating. I managed to catch this game between Australia and Hong Kong to go through for the gold medal. Ah. And Australia were leading right the way up to the end and managed to concede one in the last frame and it took it to a tie break in the rest. Right, But it was a yeah an amazing spectacle to watch. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was, it was just great. And while we are on the topic of sports that are specifically made for Paralympians, the sit-down volleyball, absolutely brilliant. I wish I'd seen it now. I haven't seen it. So the the crazy story about this is this Iranian guy. So his name's Morteza Merzad, eight foot one he is, tallest man in Iran, second tallest guy in the world behind, uh, there's a Turkish sultan who's like eight foot three or something like that. Jeez. Now, he was born with this thing called acromegaly, which is uh, it's a disorder that results from excess growth hormone, not surprisingly. Typically results in the enlargement of things like hands, feet, jaw, forehead, those sorts of things. His longer leg is 15 centimetres longer than his shorter leg. Wow. So it does make his mobility not yeah, particularly yeah, great. Yeah. But the thing is, when you're sitting down... He's still a long way taller. Yeah, than I saw. I, I haven't seen the 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 footage of the games being played, but I saw a photo of him, and he just not surprisingly towered over everyone around him. Yeah, and so shock horror, Iran wins their seventh gold medal in the last nine games. Yeah, right, <laughs> they, right. They they were brilliant. I mean, he scored twenty eight points in the final, which is a lot. Wow, it's just one of the great stories of the games. Really, is you know this sort of guy who is he's so 
appreciative of being in the limelight, but he doesn't want it all to be on him. He's said a number of times he wants the rest of the players in his team to be recognised as the amazing athletes that they are as well. And it is refreshing to see someone who doesn't want the spotlight just on them. Well, it's always a team effort, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. Yeah. Now, it has to be said, Nath, it wasn't all positives. There were a couple of things that sort of jumped out as not really in the spirit of the games. And there's one in particular that I did want to kind of get your thoughts on. Uh, there's always controversy, Stewie, always. And it revolves around this Malaysian shot putter named Mohamed Zayed Zolkelfi. He was stripped of a gold medal that he won in this F20 class of shot put. A world record throw, no less. Yeah, I know. His own world record too. After he arrived at the event three whole minutes late. Yes, now, after the event, the Ukrainian team lodged a protest, shock horror, because they came second and third, and he was then disqualified, moving the two Ukrainians up into gold and silver. Now, I understand that this kind of sets a potential dangerous precedent, but where in God's name in the spirit of the games is this? Well, there's a couple of things here. So he wasn't the only one. There were two others that got there late. There was Australian Todd Hodgetts and also Ecuador's Jordi Patricio Congo Villalba. So it wasn't just the one bloke, it was three. Now, they claimed that they did not hear the announcement together or that it was in a language that they did not understand. The counter-argument to that was, well, the other athletes managed to hear and they got there in time. Three minutes is bugger all. My thing is, if you want to be hard and fast with the rules, don't even let them compete. Mm. If you're going to let them compete and then strip them, that's fucked up. It's fucked up. Yep. They shouldn't have let them start. Yeah, I agree entirely. Now, it, it would have been heartbreaking if they didn't get to start, but at least then you don't have this situation where, as you say, a guy not only breaks a world record, he breaks his own world record and then gets nothing for it. Mm-hmm. So he now holds a record, but he didn't get a gold for it, which is equally as bizarre. And that's a great point. What's more heartbreaking? Being disqualified before you start or winning it and having it taken off you? Oh, it's a no-brainer. It's a pretty obvious answer, yeah. yeah. no-brainer. So, yeah, really... I have to say, a very, very disappointing effort from the Ukrainians. I mean, silver and bronze is still a very, very good effort. It reeks of sour grapes, doesn't it? It, it does. And and again, complain beforehand. Yeah. Why are you complaining after? Would they have complained if they'd won? No, of course not. No. So, yeah, very, very hollow victory, I yeah. have to say, from the Ukrainians. And, yeah, just not in the spirit of the games. Absolutely. They can have one of those gold medals that have got the flakes. Did you hear about them? No. So the medals have been made from recycled materials, which is good. I applaud that. And gold medals aren't actually made out of pure gold. A lot of people might not know that. They're actually gold plated. With chocolate inside. Well, they may as well be because some of them were flaking. (laughs) Some of the athletes from the Olympics prior to the Paralympics have complained about flaking gold medals. So definitely give it to those Ukraines. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They can eat the chocolate. Now, there are so many great individual performances. There's more than we would ever have enough time to talk about on this show kind of wanted to highlight three of them in particular. So the first one, Ellie Cole, absolutely amazing story. She lost her leg to cancer at the age of two, which is just, look, cancer's never a great thing. It never will be. But to have that happen to someone at such a young age, and her parents basically were given two choices. She either loses her leg or she dies. Yeah. Again, no brainer. No brainer, of course, yeah. But she had a great upbringing. She was able to to use swimming in aiding her rehabilitation, and she's turned into this world champion She now has 17 medals across her four games. Wow. Six gold, five silver, and six bronze. Wow. The most decorated female Paralympian of all time. She's still only going to be 32 when the next games are on in Paris. You're there only three years away. This is it. So you just wonder whether she might go around one more time. Oh, why wouldn't she? I mean, 32 is not exactly young in the swimming world, but geez, what a... Oh, she'd be crazy not to. What a phenomenal performer. Absolutely. Then we've got Vanessa Lowe. So she actually broke the long jump world record three times in three jumps in about an hour. Wow, that's fantastic. So she went from 5 metres 16 to 5.20 to 5.28. And it has to be said, the conditions that these athletes were made to compete in in the athletics was just horrific. Puddles of water everywhere. You know, I know it probably sounds a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's a miracle no one was seriously hurt. Oh, no, that absolutely. I mean, it was bad enough when they were doing it in the able-bodied games. It's even more of a risk for Paralympics. Mm. So, no, that's just stupid. And, and watching Lo take off as she's heading down the runway towards her jump, you know, she's one of those athletes that has lost both of her legs and she's got the little, what do you the call it? Blade, blade little, runner. Yeah, the little yeah. blade runner sort of thing. Yeah. So she's, the, the start is so slow trying to get momentum in those puddles. So to see her do that and break all of those records, 
it's just again, it's so inspiring. I know oh, it's used, nothing short of remarkable. It, it really is. I have to say, the only competitor I saw that actually turned sideways in the air and when she was landing, the old Frosby flop. Well, well, of, not, of sorts, of, of sorts. Yeah, but yeah, rather than sort of landing straight on and then falling Close, backwards, yeah, yeah. like so many of the athletes did, they were losing 20, 30 centimeters on a lot of their jumps. Right, right. And she's hitting and then rolling over, so she's right. going forwards. Okay. And I think that was the difference, essentially, in her winning gold. So, hey, tactics. Smart. Very, very, very smart. Absolutely. There's a couple I've got as well, Stewie. There's uh, 16-year-old Yang Yuyan, who set the S650 metre butterfly world record. And she shaved 0.3 seconds off the mark she set as a 14-year-old. So whenever you're setting records as a 14-year-old, that's very impressive. But she set it again as a 16-year-old, and she's been dubbed the flying fish. No surprises there. But perhaps one of the biggest stories for me was Norway's Salam Agizi Kashafali, who became the fastest 100-metre runner in Paralympic history. And he said, I came from nothing. I came from begging on the streets. I've been through so much from bullets to hunger, and to be here as one of the best means a lot to me. So that's just one of those just amazing stories. And it has to be mentioned that he is an Afghani refugee. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. And he's not the only survivor of war at the Games, actually. So there was a refugee team that did feature two Afghani athletes who had escaped from Kabul prior to all the uh, insurgency that went on in the capital there very recently. So great stories there too. Mm. And then I'll finish with a funny story and an Aussie as well. So Grant Patterson, he's been dubbed Scooter because he has a modified scooter that he carries around due to his diastrophic dysplasia, which is a form of dwarfism. And boy, he has got a sense of humour, let me tell you. He won silver in the men's 50-metre backstroke. And I quote, I'm very thankful for all the people back home that are supporting me because I nearly need a receptionist here to answer all the messages because I don't like to leave people short. Ah. So he's got a good sense of humour. It's not a joke we would make, but of course he can be self-deprecating and that scooter, zipping around on that scooter was great that as well. Was great, it was great. Just wasn't it? fantastic. Some real characters in the pool for Australia, actually. There were. So Nathan, as you alluded to before, it is three years until Paris now. We've got a fairly looming deadline for a, for this next Olympic Games. Mm. Amazingly, we got through both the Olympics and the Paralympics with minimal fuss. Yeah, yep. It's it's almost a surprise that nothing happened. There was no, I mean, nothing that we heard of anyway. No, and unfortunately, Tokyo still has a pretty big bill to foot, I think. Mm. But it could have gone a hell of a lot worse. It was, for the most part, very, very successful. It was. So we have to say, well done to Tokyo and the people. Indeed. The, the volunteers, the athletes, the officials, everyone. Well, yeah, yeah. well done. Absolutely. Arigato gozaimasu. Mm. And now, this week in sport history. September 8th, 1954, and someone we've spoken about in a This Week in Sports segment previously. You might remember Philadelphia Philly Richie Ashburn, who once hit two foul balls into the same fan's face and leg (laughs) in the same at bat. He loves a foul, doesn't he? He does. With a 3-2 count, though, in this one, Ashburn fouls off the next 14 pitches and is then walked. Oh, it's unreal the 14 fouls represents a major league baseball record for consecutive fouls and it would honestly be hard enough to do that if you were trying oh, of course it would yeah it's it, it's incredible it'd be very strong down to third man oh wow yeah yeah lots of cuts mm. yeah yeah september 8th 1965 kansas city a's bert campanaris becomes the first player in major league baseball history to play all nine positions in a single game against the california angels the A's were in the middle of a 103-loss season, so to drum up interest, their owner, Charlie Finley, came up with the idea of having Campy Campanaris night where he would appear in different positions in all nine innings. He made his way around the outfield as the game moved on, and in the eighth inning, he moved to the pitcher's mound. He pitched lefty to the left-handers and righty to the rights, allowing only two hits and one run. In the ninth inning, he moved behind the plate to be catcher. The California runners tried to test him with two attempting to steal bases at once, but Campanaris threw to second base, only for Dick Green at second to throw it back to tag out the runner coming home. It got there in time, so the runner tried to run through Campy to knock the ball loose, but he held onto it before having to leave the game late for x-rays. California would eventually win the game 5-3 in the 13th innings. Since then, four other players have played all nine positions in the same game. Cesar Tovar for the Minnesota Twins in 1968, Scotty Sheldon for the Texas Rangers in 2001, and Shane Holter and Andrew Romney for the Detroit Tigers in 2017. It's a bit gimmicky, though, doesn't it, Stewie? Does yeah. it take away from the, you know... Campanero! <laughs> That's all I could think through that whole thing. <laughs> yeah! It was... Uh, no. It, it I is, guess he played well enough. The proof's in the pudding, but... It is yeah. It is very gimmicky, but in a 103-loss season, you've kind of got to 
shake it up a little bit. I guess so. September 8th, 2002, rookie quarterback David Carr throws for two touchdowns as the Houston Texans defeat the Dallas Cowboys 19-10, becoming only the second expansion team to win their inaugural game, joining the 1961 Minnesota Vikings. Now, Carr actually hooked up with Billy Miller just a minute and 14 seconds into their existence, the third quickest score for an expansion team since 1960. I was surprised it was third. Of course, yeah. But uh, yeah, two teams, the Saints and the Dolphins, both scored from their opening kickoffs in their first game. That is really nuts. In the fourth quarter, Carr threw a gorgeous pass to Corey Bradford for a 65-yard touchdown before the game was put away in the final three minutes, thanks to... A safety! safety. Success hasn't been close to a given, though, at all for expansion teams in the NFL. Of the last 10 expansion teams, the Carolina Panthers were the most successful, going just 7-9. and nine. The 1960 Dallas Cowboys and the 1976 Tampa Bay Buccaneers didn't win a single game in their first season. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's not easy to win when you're an expansion team. David Carr, of course, is the older brother of Derek, who's now the quarterback for the Oakland Raiders and who says he wants to play till the age of 45 like Tom Brady. The only thing is he's not quite as good as Tom Brady. It's sad about David Carr, though, because even though they did have a good first season, there's a lot of talk that their shitty offensive line basically ruined his career. Mm. He just didn't get enough protection. Mm. So, yeah, he, he could have had a better career if he'd played for a better team. September 9th, 2001, Leighton Hewitt becomes the youngest world number one tennis player at just 20 years of age in the men's when he beats Pete Sampras 7-6-6-1-6-1 at the US Open men's final. This is a record that still stands today and isn't likely to be broken anytime soon. Hewitt did have to come back from two sets to one in the second round against wildcard James Blake, but he found his form at the perfect time and in the semi-final against Yevgeny Kafelnikov and the final against Sampras, he won four of the six sets by a score of 6-1. Come on! Ha. No, him and James Blake, that was a rivalry that I thoroughly enjoyed watching. They hated each other. There was always a lot of bad blood there. And yeah, what, a, what an amazing effort. I've watched a lot of highlights of that match against Sampras and he was just unstoppable in that game. Uh, I dare say a lot of players probably hated Leighton Hewitt. Maybe. <laughs> and September 10th, 1989, and one we've alluded to before, just five days after hitting a home run for the New York Yankees as part of a 12-2 win over the Seattle Mariners, Neon Deion Sanders scores his first ever NFL touchdown, returning a punt 68 yards for a touchdown in the first quarter. However, it was a terrible year for the Falcons. They finished the season 3-13, and last place in the NFC West, and only the Dallas Cowboys did worse with a 1-15 record. It wasn't actually that much better, though, for Sanders with the Yankees, and they went 74-87 and and missed the playoffs. And also, something I didn't know, how dumb is this? The Chicago Cubs are in the NL Eastern Conference, but the Chicago White Sox are in the American League Western Conference. It's really dumb, though, because technically Wrigley Field, where the Cubs play, is slightly west of guaranteed rate field where the White Sox play. So geographically, it makes no sense that the team that's further west plays in the east. Oh, American sports has all sorts of weird stuff like this over the years. I mean, Minnesota is considered the Midwest, and it's not even halfway, you know, so yeah. It's just the way it is. Funnily enough, that Dallas Cowboys team went on to win a Super Bowl only a few years later. So I guess that low record helped them get some good draft picks. It did. This week in sport history. So, Stu, we've had a very entertaining US Open as things get towards the pointy end. We've had torrential rainfall. We've had upsets. We've had marathon matches going past 2.30 in the morning. It's all happening, as the great Bill Laurie would say. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Nearly down to the semifinals. We have to go back to the first weekend of the tournament itself, though, where the carnage kind of all began. And it it wasn't a kind weekend to the three seeds in round number three at all, with both of them being rolled by teenagers who were unseeded. Mm. So before we get to the tennis, though, as you alluded to, we kind of do need to talk about the rain situation. Three inches in one hour, mm. flooding Alexander Court. Crazy. Yeah, exactly. The remains of Hurricane Ida absolutely rolled in and wreaked havoc. A lot of the players had to have their games either delayed or moved to other courts just to even get started. So, yeah, the, the corners of the roof in, in Louis Armstrong Stadium absolutely <laughs> did not do the right thing. Yeah, no, no. Not a great start. Apparently the subways were flooded. There was all sorts of people died. There was yeah. all sorts of chaos in New York City. Yeah. yeah. There weren't yeah. actually many people in the stands of a lot of the games. No, well, as no a surprise, yeah. Now, one of the stupidest things to come out of this tournament, look, Riley Opelka, had a really, really good run. He didn't lose a set until he was bundled out in the fourth round by unseated Lloyd Harris, another one of these great unseated stories. 
But it's a good thing for Riley because his final check will be $10,000 lighter thanks to a ridiculous fine from the USTA for, quote, bringing an unapproved bag onto the court. (laughs) Because the logo on a pink tote bag that said Tim Van Leer Gallery was too big. Oh, man. How stupid is that? So they're letting people go for seven-minute toilet breaks, sometimes multiple times in a match. But heaven help you if you bring the wrong bag on court. Mm. Terrible. I loved his reaction, though. I guess ticket sales were down today. <laughs> that is great. Well, yeah, look, not a good look at all. I mean, it's a bag, for God's sake. Yeah. What, what does it do? Well, it's like the Wimbledon one you talked about with the clothing. Uh, oh, the, uh, the black rim yeah, under, yeah, underneath yeah. the visor. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's always one. It's absurd. So as I alluded to before, we've had some crazy, crazy upsets. We've got to talk about Naomi Osaka first. That was probably the big casualty to come out of the tournament. So, look, she struggled in three sets against Canadian Layla Fernandez, who we'll talk about in a second. Oh, yeah, she's very impressive. But Osaka, for whatever reason, she always seems to struggle against left-handers. I don't know what it is. But when you break an 18-year-old to go up a set and 6-5 to serve for the match, you don't expect someone of her caliber to implode. Is it a choke? Absolutely it is. It is a huge choke. It was just loose forehand after loose forehand, 12 more unforced errors she had than Fernandez. And yeah, before you knew it, the third set was absolutely gone and, mm. and so was she. And now she's basically on a leave of absence. So we don't know when she'll be back. She will be back, but we just don't know when. I think this is the right decision though. She absolutely needs to get away from this game for a while. She's not going to be short of money. It's not like she's risking herself financially. Oh, and it's been a huge year for her considering she lit the cauldron at the Olympics and everything. It's been a massive year, so fair enough. Yeah, hopefully it'll kind of temper the expectations surrounding her. She's got the weight of the world on her shoulders right now and it's the last thing she needs to worry about is hitting a tennis ball around yeah. the court, yeah. quite frankly. So we do have to then talk about Layla Fernandez. She has been the real surprise packet of this entire tournament. Yeah, absolutely, mate. She hits a heavy ball, but she has a bit of panache as well. So there's every reason to believe she's a star in the making. Yeah, it's it's a couple of great points. So her power on her forehand is phenomenal for someone of her age and her size. Yep. And you mentioned the panache. I mean, she's a real fighter. I mean, she goes after everything. She just runs and runs and runs. She's got all the makings, doesn't she? She's got that hunger. She's got that desire. And she's also got the character. So one of the things that I love about her is that she really plays the crowd perfectly. She understands when she needs a lift. She also understands when she needs to take a step back and kind of walks across to the back of the, of the court and kind of gets herself set. But what I love about her the most is that, yeah, she's so poised but so gutsy in the moment. So she obviously had that great win over Osaka. She then came from a set and a breakdown against Angelique Kerber to stun her. But I think yeah, the most impressive performance is this one against the five-seed Alina Svitolina in the quarterfinals overnight, becoming the youngest semifinalist at Flushing Meadows since Maria Sharapova in 2005. Yes, I read that today, yeah. yeah. And for some reason, whenever I switch on ESPN, it's always the women's game. I've seen hardly any of the men's game, yeah. but I've seen all these flashes of, of the women's side of the draw, which is fine. Yeah, I was very impressed with what I saw of it. Very impressed. Well, I think the big thing for me is that, so in this one, she's up 5-2 in the third set. She manages to basically get it back to 5-5, does Spitalina. And you kind of think, right, here's the moment where it all goes pear-shaped for the teenager. And she refocused. And in during that tie break, again, she's up 4-1. Before you know it, it's back at 5-all. And there's this point that's played. Spitalina has played a really, really nice shot, very, very deep, almost at her ankles. And she's managed to block one out. Svitolina plays a really nice backhand volley down the line. And the only option she has is to basically full smack it. Yeah. Full yep. stretch. And she's clips just, the tape. She's laced it off the tape yeah. down the line. Yep. yep. And then goes on and wins at the next point. Yeah. Huge. And she, you use the key word poise. It's yep. all about poise. Yeah. Yep. I think she understands that, you know, she's really, she's playing with house money right now. Yep. No Absolutely. One, no one expected her to get past probably the second round. Yep. And here she is now one win away from a Grand Slam final and a very, very good chance as well. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, a lot of good young up-and-comers with Emma Raducanu too. So, yeah. That's exactly who I was going to talk about next. 150th ranked in the world. She's been a really, really fun story. She's been a bit lucky with her opponents. None of them have been seeded so far, but she's only lost four games in her last two matches. So, you know, not dropping a set in qualifying or the main draw yet. She's got Belinda Bencic of Switzerland next, so that's going to be a really, really stern test for her. But another one, great power, really great wheels. She seems to get around the court so, so well. And you kind of ask yourself, why not? 
Yeah, well, hey, the, the Poms will be loving it if they can have their first women's winner in a long time, long time. But she's very young, so she'll she, be around for a she while. She is, but she's so mature for an 18-year-old. Like, I was listening to some of her post-matches. and She interviews so well. She's a student of the game. She understands what she's doing. She's got a smile that can absolutely light up a room. She carries herself so well. And in typically British fashion, she was born in Toronto. <laughs> Thought you'd get a oh, kick that's out of that. fantastic. That is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, look, let's maybe just quickly finish off the women's side of the draw. Ash Barty. Yeah. Disappointing end for Ash. Very bad choke against Shelby Rogers. A, a really horrific one. Up 5-2 in the third set with two breaks. Yeah. But once again, her inability to serve out big games just comes to the fore at the worst time. And, you know, she failed to serve that one out. She had to basically hold just to make the tiebreak in the third set, which she ultimately lost. She also failed to serve out a match at 5-4 in the second set against Denmark's Clara Torsen in the second round and against Vera Swanareva in the first round. Obviously, Rogers had the home crowd behind her, so she was always going to get that lift from the Yankees over there. But yeah, no, it's troubling. Failing to serve out. I mean, we saw it in Wimbledon. You know, she struggled yes. a bit with her serve. She made that match harder than it needed to be. Yep. So absolutely in the final. So yeah, and, and as you say, look, credit to Rogers. She fed off the crowd. She turned points from from defense to offense really quickly. She, every ball that she was hitting was deep. She deserved to win that game. Interesting little note though: at five two down, Las Vegas bookies had Rogers at odds of five thousand to one. Wow, just twenty bucks. Yeah, well, that's all yeah, you need. One buck, mate. Jeez. Oh, go twenty. <laughs> Make it interesting. So then in the men's, again, the three seeds, Stefano Sitsipas, a real shock. Three matches, three lengthy toilet breaks. Well, it is flushing meadows, Chewy. <laughs> no, yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> that is... I reckon he's, he's just about a cheat. Oh, it, it's, it's taking gamesmanship to a level where it just really isn't. Well, I heard on PTI at the Cincinnati Open, he had five toilet breaks averaging seven minutes each just in that tournament alone. And apparently he's bringing his phone in and potentially getting coaching. Is the tip? Are you sure he's not just playing Angry Birds or well, Candy Crush or yeah, something? Yeah, I don't know, but it's it, using Dunny breaks to halt momentum is very shitty. Pun intended. It's a dog act. It is. It really is. It is a dog act. So yeah, it, he tried it again against Carlos Alcaraz, the youngest player to beat a top three player in the world at the U.S. Open since 1973. Mm. It looked, for all intents and purposes, like that toilet break had screwed up the momentum for Alcaraz. He lost the fourth set, six love, but he lifted again. And like with so many of these younger players, Alcaraz hits the ball so fucking hard. Well, I was going to say, he's almost the men's side Fernandez, isn't he? There's one in each draw, isn't there? There there really is. So, yeah, I I mean, I love this kid. He doesn't give up on points. They're talking about him being the heir apparent to Rafael Nadal. It's easy to see why. Unfortunately, he had to retire a set and a breakdown against Felix Auger-Aliassim today, which is very, very sad. Sad way to go. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, no, look, really, really good to see Stefanos getting his karma. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it's borderline cheating and it's it's creeping into the game. Apparently other players have done it a little bit this tournament too, so I don't like it at I'm, all. I'm not a fan of it, No, quite frankly. And apparently he's going in there to change his clothes. Like what is he's like George Costanza taking his clothes off to have a dump and then, you know. I mean, you're a young bloke with a decent body. Just Well, everyone else changes, yeah. Yeah, get the rig out in front of everyone. Yeah, it, it's clearly gamesmanship. Absolutely. And it's clearly bullshit. Yeah. So I hope he always loses. Now, I just quickly want to hit you up with a stat before we move on, just regarding the amount of shocks that we get in these tournaments. There's always some Cinderella story of someone who is unseated. We think back to guys like Goran Ivanisevic at Wimbledon or Kim Clijsters, who who won a major from a wildcard position as well. Two former pretty highly ranked players. It's yeah, got to be pretty, said. pretty bloody good players. Yeah. But, but if you look at... So since 2000, there have been 172 completed Grand Slams, 86 men's, 86 women. From those 172, only 10 times have the top four seeds all made the semifinals. Not once for the men at Wimbledon, not once for the women at the US Open, the French Open, or the Australian Open, and it's not going to happen at this US Open for either gender. It's got to be said, though, that it, you only need one of the four to miss for the, to not happen. Mm. So I'm not all that surprised the number's that low, to be honest. There's not that many more, though, that would have added on if it was three of the four. Either. Yeah, okay. So okay. It, it was so often I'm seeing, and especially in the women's draw, I'm seeing so many where it's unseeded players, you know, anything from 15 up to, you know, the 32 sort of mark. And those numbers are skewed slightly. 
Serena Williams, every time she decided to take a break from the game, her ranking dropped. Yes. So she would quite often make it from 15, 17, 22, whatever. And I think Kim Kleiss had a kid. Lindsay Davenport probably did a right after she had a kid as well. So there's probably been a few cases on the women's side of the yeah. draw of that. And then you had all three of the big three, I guess, won't include any Murray in that, but Djokovic, Federer and Nadal all had injuries that saw them drop down. I think the 2017 Australian Open final, Federer and Nadal was the 17 seed versus the nine seed. Wow. Which is kind of crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. One of the best matches of all time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. But even if you look at the final itself, less than 37% of all of those finals have been played between two of the top four seeds. So you're certainly seeing a lot of these unseeded players or the, the higher seeded players getting through. So it's, it's good for the game. Or unseeded, of course. Or unseeded, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And just quickly, it's been a great tournament so far for Novak Djokovic. He yes. is having a great run. Hasn't had a single-seeded opponent yet. He has Matteo Berrettini overnight, which I am absolutely over the moon to see. He played a 20-minute game. Yeah. 20-minute for one game. Yeah. Whew. Look, he hasn't served well. He's dropped the first set in his past two. Berrettini wants revenge. He's lost to him in the last two Grand Slams. So it's going to be good fun. He's got to essentially get through Berrettini, Sparov, and Medvedev to win this thing. Three guys who are playing very, very good tennis right now. It's about to get really interesting for Djokovic. And he has all the pressure in the world because he's going for that record of 21. So he needs to pick his game up a little bit over this second week. And even though he can't get the Golden Slam, he can still get the Grand Slam for a season. Big stakes for him. Hmm. He'd be the first guy in the men's since I think Rod Laver in about 1969. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, a long, long long time. time. And just one quick one to round out now that the Paralympics are over, Dylan Alcott heads across looking for his own Golden Slam. Yes, indeed, he does. Yeah, go, Dill. Go, Dill. And uh, I think I might go and take a seven-minute toilet break, Stuart. Okay. All right, Stuart, you know what that music means. Time to say you're amped to go to the prelim on Friday night. Mate, that was amped for you to come back from that seven-minute toilet break. That was more like 20. Well, it's only a joke, Stuart. I've been sitting next to you the whole bloody time. <laughs> no, look, you're right. The obvious one is us all going off just to cheer on the days. Can't bloody wait. I actually think the Port Adelaide and Dogs game could be better if Bontempelli plays, but it's, it's just hard to know. I'm actually looking forward to both of them more than anything this year. Well, it was great to see the Geelong GWS game with the sun setting. The stadium just looked magnificent. I can't wait to be a part of that action. It's going to be so good. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes. <laughs>